How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we're going to have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are focused and ready to study the word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We are to walk by the Spirit, but when we sin, that walk by the Spirit stops and we start living according to the sin nature. So we need to uh, confess our sin. At that instant, we recover fellowship and we can resume our forward walk by the Spirit. So we have a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful we have this time to come together, study your word, to bring prayer requests before you, to focus upon individual needs within the congregation as well as for our nation. Father, we pray for wisdom for our leaders. We pray for wisdom for leaders in, in different realms, from the realms of the churches, realms of other organizations, as well as realms within uh, the city county, state, politics, and, Father, especially wisdom for those who can have an impact on quelling the violence in, in Missouri and on bringing a focus upon the truth and for people who would be responsive to the truth and uh, cool, that cool heads prevail. Father, we pray that in this situation as well as others that there might be opportunities to make the gospel clear for the only hope for this nation is for people to get their focus upon the Word of God, upon the gospel of grace and the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us to be more alert to the fact that we have opportunities every day to make an impact for the gospel, to talk to somebody, to mention something, to say something, to make a comment that you can use in order to bring people's focus back to the Word of God and to eternal truth. Father, we pray that you challenge us tonight as we go forward in our study of dispensations and come to a better understanding of how our spiritual life uh, plays a role in the angelic conflict and then on into the uh, future in terms of the rapture and the tribulation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me for right now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We won't get there for a few minutes. But as we, in the last two or three lessons, or maybe it's four, we've been going through the church age, and we've been looking at the characteristics of the church age and the distinctives of the church age, and that which stands out as most distinctive in the church age is the presence of the Holy Spirit in a distinct way from how he uh, was involved in the Old Testament and how he will be involved under the new covenant in the millennial kingdom. During the church age, we saw from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, that in the, in, the, um, in the church age, it is the baptism by the Holy Spirit that distinguishes the, the individual believer in the church age from believers of all other generations. 
we are baptized by the Spirit at the instant of salvation. That never happened before the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, and it will never happen again after the rapture. Now, there's some disagreement among some dispensationalists about that, but I will show you that this is, that this is the case because that which marks the distinctiveness, the most, most focused distinctive of the church age is that baptism by the Holy Spirit. So if the church is raptured before the tribulation, then there will not be a baptism by the Holy Spirit for the, for tribulation saints. It goes back to a different modus operandi for the, for their spiritual life so that we have this distinctive. It's similar, but it's not as great as the role the Holy Spirit will play in the Millennial Kingdom. We'll come back to some of those passages when we get there. Now, as we've gone through each of these different eras, well, let's just go through this chart once again and see if uh, I think I've got fixed what didn't work last week. Well, now it's working. It wasn't working a little while ago. I don't This chart may be demon-possessed. We're going to start off in the Old Testament. We have two ages. An age and a dispensation are distinct. An age may include several dispensations because God shifts how he administers human history within those ages. The ages are marked off by distinctions within certain people. For example, from the creation until the call of Abraham, everyone on the earth was a Gentile. Everyone on earth was treated by God the same, and God was working through in and through the entirety of the human race. But with the failure at the Tower of Babel, God shifted gears and began to work through one individual and his descendants, and that was Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob. Uh, Abraham had eight sons. There's only one that's the line of the seed, and that's Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Only one is the line of the seed. And so it is through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we have uh, Israel. And so we have the age of Israel that extends up to the cross. Now, in the first dispensation, we call it perfect environment. Older dispensationalists called it innocence, and there's nothing wrong with that term because it's a judicial term, and it means without guilt, and there was no guilt in the garden. So it was a dispensation of innocence. It was a perfect environment. The covenant that governed God's relationship with man was the Edenic covenant or the creation covenant, as I've called it in the slide, Genesis one twenty-eight to 30. Then we have, now I've missed that one thing. It was there earlier. I don't know what, what happens there. Okay, the second category is responsibility. Then we have the, um, they, they uh, were to fulfill that covenant by being obedient, by filling the earth, by subduing the earth, and they failed by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then we have the divine judgment, which was spiritual death. This brings in the next dispensation, which is the dispensation of, of conscience. It is governed by the Adamic covenant, which is a modification of the creation covenant. The Adamic covenant is spelled out in Genesis 3:14 through 19. The responsibility is the animal sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, blood sacrifice, a death 
to pay for sin in a substitutionary way. It only, it, it's not a permanent solution. It's only a temporary solution until the final victory by the seed of the woman. Then we have uh, the dominance of evil and wickedness on the human race. We have the, in, the influx of fallen angels who seek to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. God brings judgment through the Noahic flood. The end of the flood. There's a new disp- a new covenant, and uh, this is the covenant with Noah. Establishes uh, human government that is to oversee the the governing of the human race to establish righteousness on the earth. Man is told to fill the earth, but again he fails to do that. He he organizes himself at the Tower of Babel to assert his authority against God. And God brings judgment, the confusion of languages. Then God calls out Abraham, gives Abraham a new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. The responsibility is for he and his descendants to stay a distinct people from the other Gentiles. They fail to do that, and they are on the verge of total assimilation by Genesis chapter 34. So God has them removed down to Egypt, where they enter into slavery, but this is to protect them. And during their time under Egyptian bondage, they move from approximately 70 people to somewhere between 2.5 to 3 million people as God oversees um, their, their population growth and their safety. Then God redeems them as a nation from slavery, brings them to Mount Sinai, gives them a new covenant, This is the only temporary covenant. This is the Mosaic covenant. Their responsibility is to obey the law. They failed to obey the law again and again, so they are taken out under divine discipline and scattered throughout the nations. It is that after a portion of them are returned that God sends the Messiah in fulfillment of promises and prophecies in the Old Testament there is, he is a new revelation. He is the Logos of God. He is the, the very um, uh, incarnation of God in terms of the human race. There's a new, new responsibility. They are to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They are to accept the Messiah. Instead, they reject the Messiah, although many tens of thousands accepted him. Most did not. The result was judgment at the cross and then ultimately the fifth cycle of discipline in A.D. 70. That brought in the new church age. The new covenant is applied, but it is not initiated. It is. Not, it does not begin. The new covenant is yet future. The new covenant is with the house of of Judah and the house of Israel. There are just blessings from the new covenant during the church age. The issue in the church age is the gospel, faith alone in Christ alone. Most will reject Christ. The end will come, the judgment that comes is the tribulation. This follows the rapture of the church, and then sometime after the rapture of the church, we have the tribulation, seven-year period, also known as the time of Jacob's wrath and the uh, uh, time of Daniel's 70th week. Okay, now now the responsibility line gets in there. Okay, that's our chart to this point. Uh, we need to understand all those different dimensions, but that, that helps us understand things. So the last part in talking about the church age is I want to relate the church age to the angelic conflict. 
The church age is related to the angelic conflict in numerous passages in the epistles. And this is important because it tells us that we as church age believers have a very important and distinct role to play in our, in terms of our spiritual life during this dispensation. Angels are watching us. They learn from us. We have a testimony before the angels as they observe how we respond to the grace of God and how we live our, our, our Christian life in obedience to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is defending his apostleship to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were a messed up group of Christians. They were as disobedient and as arrogant and as licentious and as profligate as any group of Christians at any time in history. They were believers. Paul calls them saints. So behavior is never an accurate guide to a person's uh, justification. We are justified not because of who we are or what we've done. We're justified because of who God is and what Christ has done on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul's defending his, his apostleship because one of the things that they, they did in their rebelliousness was to impugn and assault and malign his apostle, apostolic authority. So at the conclusion of that, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. His point is really that, that in terms of human viewpoint, in terms of the wisdom of the Greeks, the apostles are not special. They would na- never make anybody's list of the top 500 popular people in the world. Uh, they would never show up positively on any of the entertainment shows on television. Nobody would want to be around them. They usually didn't have much. Some of them had a little more. Some had less. Some had wives and families. Paul did not. But in terms of the world's thinking, in terms of success, they didn't measure up very much. But in the same section in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, what matters to God is that a steward is found faithful. That's the issue. It's not how many people they get saved. It's not how many people come to their church, the size of the church, the size of the Sunday school, any of the other barometers that modern churches use to measure success. God's measure of success is that a man is found faithful. And so Paul goes on from there and he says that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. There's our role as believers. We are watched by by human beings, and we're watched by angels. Eventually, we have a more distinct role in relation to angels. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul is, again, castigating these carnal Corinthians for the, because they're taking each other to court, over irrelevant issues, and they are creating a spectacle before the carnal Corinthians who, and they're, they're out carnal, they're, they're being more carnal. They are out sinning the Corinthians in some cases and making the Corinthians blush. And so Paul again comes, writes to them and he says, don't you know 
that we shall judge angels. In the future, in the millennial kingdom, we will be in a position as believers to judge or rule over the angels. We've been made a little lower than the angels now to be promoted over them in the millennial kingdom. We are learning things today that are beyond their experience. And it is from the wisdom of the Word of God, the wisdom of that which is taught in the Word, the wisdom of Bible doctrine, that will give us that ability to wisely judge the angels in the future. Not now, but in the future. So Paul says, don't you know, this is important. You're in preparation. You're in training because your future role is to judge over the angels. How much more, he says, shouldn't we judge matters in this life? And his argument in this passage is that when believers fall out, and they will, that they should be going to other believers to help them resolve their conflicts and to restore uh, peace and to reconcile. But obviously, when Christians are operating on carnality, then we have no one to go to. Later on in a passage that uh, has been uh, interpreted, misinterpreted, and and ripped apart in many ways, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about the fact that there are different roles assigned by God to men, to males, and to females. God has made male souls different from female souls. And that God has distinct roles. doesn't mean one's better than the other or one is metaphysically or ontologically superior to the other. One is less equal than, than another. But that there are roles. And in this discussion, he is talking about the fact that the uh, women ought to have their head covered. And I believe in the context, he is talking about hairstyles, that there are specific hairstyles that distinguish women from men, and that women are to wear their hair in a way that reflects femininity, and men are to wear their hair in a way that reflects masculinity, and that they had a... See, the Greeks had all kinds of sexual perversions, and cross-dressing was one of them. And so you would have men who uh, were a little gender confused and they'd be very proud of the LGBT law that Houston's trying to pass. And, um, so they were dressing like women. And if you, I go through the whole thing in the first Corinthian series. And so a part of this was that the woman's hair was a sign of her submission to the authority of her husband and that she wasn't going to wear it like a man, indicating that she was the one who would be in authority, or as we say in, in, in an English idiom, she wearing the pants in the family. Of course, now women wear pants as much as men do, so it doesn't have the force that it once did. But that's what this passage is talking about. And without getting into all of those issues, the conclusion that Paul has here is important. He says, therefore... The woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, what was the original angelic sin? A violation of God's authority. Satan rebelled against the authority of God. So one of the things that the angels are learning from you, blank, I'll put your name there. One of the things that the angels are learning from you is how to respect authority. 
Think about that. The angels are watching you to learn how to respect authority. And that's what this is talking about. Now, there's a lot of debate in the passage about uh, what the uh, sign of authority is. There's some who think it's a hat, and this was a common interpretation for many centuries, and this is why in some churches the custom is for women always to wear hats. Uh, that is not our custom. That's not our background. But they understood that this was the issue. It's because of the angels. So now I don't, sometimes some churches don't let women wear hats because they think that, well, the hats will block the vision of other people. I don't know about that. I think the hats are, are very attractive on women, but has nothing to do with this passage. This passage is about uh, dressing in a manner that reflects submission to the wife's authority that is the husband. Okay, another passage dealing with this is in 1 Timothy 3.16. By God, common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. There's that word again. The godliness is the Greek word eusebeia, which is sometimes translated piety. I find that words like godliness and piety and holiness are words that have been used so much in Christianity that they've lost their real meaning. The idea of Eusebia is somewhat captured if we think about the word godliness in its old English connotation. Godliness, that, that suffix of leanness means likeness. It means to be like God. Now, if you think about the fact that we have been called by God and he is working to conform us to the image of Christ, that is God-likeness. When the character of Christ is displayed in us at, through the uh, fruit of the Spirit, that is being godlike. So the the shortcut to this definition is that godliness means the spiritual life. So he says, "Great is the mystery." That is the kind of spiritual life in the church age was not revealed in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. It was a previously unrevealed doctrine. It is now revealed in the New Testament because it's based on walking by the Spirit. Nobody else in human history had ever had that opportunity before. So he goes on to say, great is the mystery of godliness. And, of course, that's grounded in the character of Christ. So the next few lines focus upon the person of Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, beheld by angels. That's the line I'm looking at. Christ was watched by the angels. We are in Christ. We are united with him. So the conclusion is we too are watched by the angels as well. In 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul gives a charge to his uh, young protege, Timothy. And Timothy, you were young in that culture before you were 40. After that, you were... um, you were a little bit older, but but Timothy wasn't a 19 or 20 or 25 or 30-year-old year kid. He was probably in his late 30s at this time and had a measure of maturity behind him. So Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. 
He's treating the witness of the angels to what is going on in the local church as something that is quite serious. So he is giving this charge to Timothy as a, and that it is being witnessed to by the angels. And then in 1 Peter 1.12 we read, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, that is, these carnal Christians, but I mean, not, not carnal Christians, but in terms of Old Testament saints, but you and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So you're learning things from the teaching of God's word that angels are learning as well that this was not the way God dealt with the angels in eternity past. They didn't have these lessons in Scripture. They didn't learn about God's grace in the same way. So they learn in the dynamic of the pastor teaching the Word of God and the individual believer learning the Word of God and applying the Word of God, there's a whole dynamic there that the angels are watching. And they're learning, and this is part of their education. So one of the reasons things happen to you and things happen to me that give us opportunities to trust the Lord is so God can teach the angels about his grace and about his character. Now, as we wrap this up, I want to go through about 13 things that are lessons that we learn in relation to the angelic conflict. First of all, we learn about God's right to rule, God's authority to rule over his creation, because that was the challenge of Satan, was that he wanted to be like God. He wanted to carve out a part of the creation at that time, part of the angels, and to rule over them. And his idea must have been that he could do it better than God could do it. What God is showing in human history is that no one can do it better than he can do it. No one can even come close. That the more Satan, more autonomy Satan has, the more disaster and chaos ensues. This is why one of the lessons that's learned in the tribulation period is Satan is given almost total free reign and everything just turns to, to absolute disaster. Second thing we learn is that God has the right to be the sole object of worship. He's not going to share the throne with anybody. He's not going to give anyone else an option. Uh, he has the right to be the sole object of worship, and he doesn't uh, allow anyone to compete with him. Third thing we learn in the angelic conflict is that this is the supremacy of God's essence over all creation. God is supreme. He is the creator of the angels. He is the creator of human beings. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And he must, therefore, be honored and obeyed. Fourth thing we learn is the importance of authority orientation. This is emphasized, as I pointed out earlier in the passage in 1 Corinthians 11.10, but it goes back to Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 when Satan rebelled against God. He disobeyed God's authority. It happened in the Garden of Eden. That was the test. The issue in the Garden of Eden with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't that something would happen physically to man, that he would physically die, but that if he disobeyed God, an act of, uh, that violated God's authority, 
then it would not only change his metaphysical condition, he would die spiritually and be separated from God, but it would reverberate through all of the universe. I mean, that is just something for us to contemplate, that Adam's act of disobedience, just eating that piece of fruit, changed the dynamics of the physical universe. It had an impact on animals. It had an impact on the laws of physics. It had an impact on many, many, many things. And all of that is because of disobedience. So God is teaching the importance of complete and total obedience to his authority. So that leads to the fifth point, the supremacy of dependence upon him and the futility of independence from him. Even in the least little thing, when we think we can go our way, it will have tragic, unintended consequences. So we need to be dependent upon him. The word for that is trust. The word for that is faith. That's the faith rest drill. We need to depend upon him and trust his word. A sixth thing we learn is that God is absolutely just in sending Satan to the lake of fire. God is not being cruel and mean to his creatures. God is not being unfair. God is being absolutely just because it's that that single act of Lucifer's rebellion against God that brought about all of this horror in human history. And it brought about, about all of the sickness, all of the disease, all of the warfare, all of the divorce, all of the crises of poverty and, and uh, everything else that we can think of is all the result of Satan's decision. And we have to understand that, that, it's, that it is so horrible that it is worthy of eternal condemnation. The seventh thing we learn is that God has a right as the creator to be the object of his creature's love. We are to love him unconditionally and totally. He is to be the object of love, and when we learn what that's all about, then in turn that allows us to love others for his love, and the pattern of his love is what helps us to understand what love is. Otherwise, we're just basing it on emotion, on sentiment, on what we feel, what others feel, what others do. Now, see, we're having, aren't we having fun here? Here we go. Okay. One more. There we go. So, God's right as a creator to be the object of his creature's love. Now, eight. The importance of grace orientation and how it functions. We have to emphasize grace. And let me make a point here. Earlier, and I've been thinking about this ever since I've gone back through these notes and gone back through and th- thought about this, that among dispensationalists, we have the, the tradition of calling the, the present age the church age. There are others who call it the age of grace, emphasizing grace. But grace has been operative all the way through history. Ever since Adam's fall, grace has been operative. I think a better term might be the age of the Holy Spirit, but the millennial kingdom's even better than that. So we, I'm not so sure I like calling the church age the age of grace because it, it implies there's something distinctive there, and I'm not sure that that's it. All through human history, we're learning about grace orientation. We saw, saw great lessons on grace orientation in the life of Abraham. 
We will see soon great lessons in grace orientation in the life of Samuel and in the life of Saul and in the life of David as we go forward in 1 Samuel when we finish our study on Romans on uh, Thursday night. But uh, what we learn in the angelic conflict is the importance of grace orientation and how it functions. God is demonstrating his grace toward us day after day. Ninth, in the angelic conflict, we see God's absolute and exclusive right to be obeyed as well as his absolute and exclusive right to judge his creatures, that there is no other judge who's omniscient. There's no other judge who is absolutely righteous. God is absolutely righteous, and it is correlative to his absolute knowledge. Only someone who is truly omniscient can be truly righteous in his judgments because he knows all the facts and knows the issues. So God alone has the right to be obeyed because of his nature, because of his character. We also learn in the angelic conflict why the creature cannot live apart from the creator. The creature must be exclusively dependent upon the the creator. That takes us back to uh, point number five, which states the supremacy of dependence on him and the futility of independence from him. Point number 11, we learn why Satan should not be allowed to rule his own domain as an independent creature because it would just cause collapse. This is why everything ultimately leads to Satan being given almost unrestricted authority during the tribulation period. And then we see in the millennial kingdom that during that period, he's off the planet and he's not involved. He's not messing with anybody at all. We see the horrors of the sin nature displayed that there will still be a huge segment of the population uh, during the millennial kingdom that will rebel against God. This is why the Messiah has to rule with a rod of iron during the millennial kingdom because there are so many unbelievers. And eventually when Satan is released, they will willingly and rapidly flock to his banner. Enormous numbers, thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands will flock to his banner and and lead and go, follow his revolt against God in that final Gog and Magog revolution, and God will destroy them with fire from heaven. Twelfth, the honor and glory for the creature only comes from the honor and glory of the Creator. The only way in which we are truly glorified, the only way in which we have any lasting honor, is as a result of being totally submissive to God and totally dependent upon him and totally obedient. That's the only way we can ever have any lasting honor and glory. Otherwise, all glory and honor is fleeting. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. But only that honor that is connected to the Lord Jesus Christ will last. And then last, the importance of the loyal, humble servanthood to the Creator as well as demonstrating all of the character qualities that are necessary in a creature to rule and reign with Christ. This is emphasized again and again in the angelic conflict. Only by being a loyal, humble servant to God can we have uh, any success. And in that, we demonstrate the characters, the character of Jesus Christ. All right, that brings us to the end of the um, 
Church Age Dispensation. It's a good time to take a little break, so if anybody has any questions, if any questions came in. Yep, Bryce? No, turn Bryce on. You're on. Hello, hello. He's not getting any volume. Okay. Okay, he's asking a question getting off into the issue related to the head covering and relating to a cultural issue. When Paul deals with authority in terms of the, of the role of men and women, he never ties it to a cultural issue. He never does. In fact, in that passage, he goes back to creation. And what he is indicating there is this, there, there is a distinction. Now, the point that I'm making, and the only thing I want to, want to get into here is that that Paul is is demonstrating that whatever that symbol is, whether it's a hat or hair or whatever it is, the point, the reason that it has to be there is because of the angels, because it's signifying authority. And so the point that I'm, the only point I'm making here is that we need to recognize that our, and it's not just women, men are under the various authorities as well as children. Everyone has authorities over them. How we respond to authority is being watched by by the angels. Okay, any other questions? Okay, now we're going to shift gears. What ends the church age? Now, what I believe what ends the church age is the rapture of the church. And so what I want to cover now is some reasons why I believe in a pre-trib rapture. Now, the term pre-tribulation means before the tribulation. There are other terms that are used in this discussion. One is post-tribulation. These are people who believe that that uh, the rapture occurs after the tribulation, after the seven years of Daniel's 70th week, and that it is after the tribulation that that Jesus will return. And as it were, as Jesus is descending from heaven to the earth to defeat the enemies of Israel at the campaign of Armageddon, he, he has a nanosecond or two where he pauses on the way down, and all of those who are alive in Christ are caught up to be with him, and the dead in Christ as well. They rise first and then the rest of us come up uh, instantly afterward, that that is at the end of the tribulation. The basic problem with that, and I'll demonstrate this in another way as we get into things, is that if every believer alive and dead is raptured at the end of the tribulation, then one second later there's not a single believer in a mortal body on the earth which means there's no believers who will survive in the tribulation in mortal bodies to go into the millennial kingdom and to repopulate the earth. But it is very clear from Revelation 20 that there are people who populate the earth 
during the uh, millennial kingdom who have children with sin natures who will not believe in Jesus as the Messiah and will revolt against him with following Satan in that revolt at the end of the uh, millennial kingdom. So that means there has to be some people who are believers who survive the tribulation and go into the millennial kingdom with mortal bodies to marry and to propagate and to build a mortal population upon the earth. But if everyone alive who is a believer is raptured as Jesus is coming down, uh, gets their new resurrection body, then no one is left to have a mortal body. It, it is rationally unacceptable. So that's actually one of my arguments for why I believe in the pre-trib rapture, but we'll focus more on scriptural arguments as we go through this. A couple of questions we need to address, first of all, is what is the rapture? And then secondly, when is the rapture? We probably won't get to the second question tonight, but we're going to take some time to understand what the Bible teaches about the rapture in the first part. So the first question is, what exactly is the rapture? Now, I'm going to give you a definition for the rapture that may be a little different from some of you than some of the things that you've heard in the past. That's because I have a reputation for clarity and precision. So we're going to make this clear and precise because I've been nailed on this wrongly before. The rapture is the translation of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age immediately following the resurrection of all dead church-age believers. The rapture occurs before the tribulation begins. You see, if you look at the text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when we have the rapture passage, the term rapture is a Latin word that comes from the, that, that was used to translate the Greek word harpazo. And harpazo is the word that refers to um, caught up together. That's how it's translated in in First Thessalonians four seventeen. So we read that we read in verse sixteen, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's resurrection. That's not rapture. Verse 17, then, a nanosecond later, we who are alive and remain shall be raptured with them in the clouds. That's where the word rapture comes from. It's that word harpazo. Harpazo only applies to those who are alive and remain. So technically, based on the grammar and the use of the verb, only those who are alive and remain are described as being snatched up, which is what uh, harpazo means. But if you want to continue to think that the rapture includes both, be feel free. That's just not the verb that's applied to the dead believers. They are resurrected. So I have tried to be rigorously precise in this definition, that the rapture is the translation of the living believers from the earth at the end of the church age, and that immediately follows the resurrection of all dead church age believers, and that the rapture occurs prior to or before the tribulation begins. 
Now, the key passage, the central passage everyone goes through, there are other strong passages, but this is the central passage, is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And I've put the whole passage up here on the screen. It'll be difficult for you to see, but sometimes it's important to put the whole section up there. And we want to read it. Paul says, but I do not want you to be ignorant brethren. Now, I've always wondered where the punctuation was in his mind. Is he talking, is he saying, I don't want you to be ignorant brethren? Or is he saying, I don't want you to be ignorant brethren? (laughs) I'm not sure. Sometimes it's important where you place the commas, as Sandy always tries to help me with. Okay. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, notice the involvement of God in this action at the rapture, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. As we'll see, the word sleep in Jesus is a euphemism describing that is used consistently in Scripture to describe believers who have died physically. It's not talking about soul sleep. It is simply talking about the fact that they have died physically. It's just a euphemism. Their soul is with the Lord. Their immaterial uh, soul and spirit are with the Lord, and their physical body is in the grave until this event. Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now that's important as well because he is saying that this was what Jesus taught as well. So the question you ought to ask is what? When did Jesus teach this? Okay, we'll see that in a little while. For by this we, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So he's not simply saying that God told me and now I'm telling you. He's not just using that as a, as an expression for, for inspiration. He is saying that this was indicated by teaching from Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. They were apparently the Thessalonians were afraid that that somehow the, those who were alive when Jesus got back would get to heaven a long time before uh, those who died uh, would get to heaven. And it, what it, it's important because this indicates that Paul taught them some things about prophecy and eschatology. Guess what? He was only in Thessalonica for about two to three months. So that means that, that contrary to a lot of arrogant believers in this life today who say, oh, we don't need to worry about future things. People just debate and divide over those things all the time. We just need to focus on living the Christian life. Well, the Apostle Paul must have thought that these things were so important that if he only had three months to teach somebody, this is what, part of what he would teach them. So... We live in a world today due to postmodernism where people don't want distinctions. They don't want people coming to certain conclusions on things because epistemologically we can't really know. If you've bought into the modern world's thinking, then, then you have these subtle influences that you can't really know certain things. That's why they continue to to debate some things or many things. Okay, we're told that, um, 
Then in verse 16, for the Lord himself, speaking of Jesus, distinguishing Jesus from God, who is mentioned in verse 14, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Resurrection, same verb used earlier when it talks about Jesus. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. So it shows that it's very close together. We don't get the dynamics until we get into 1 Corinthians 15, where we're told that it's in the blink of an eye. So that's about, some have said that's a 64th of a second. And so we're not going to be able to tell the difference. We're not going to say, oh, one, two, three, okay, now I can go up. No, it's just going to be so fast that we're, humanly speaking, we couldn't tell the difference. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. That shout, I believe, is, is part of or simultaneous with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ immediately go up. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the clouds. That's important. We meet the Lord in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The comfort is not in feelings. The comfort is in knowing truth. Now, we need to look at rapture vocabulary. I always love to have a little fun with the animations here. It's harpazo. We're caught up to... The harpazo is the key word here, to be caught up. It means to seize upon with force or to snatch up. It's sometimes been used with what a thief does when he picks your pocket. He snatches something. It's unexpected, and it is quick. And it's used here in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Every now and then you'll say somebody, you know, the rapture is not mentioned in the Bible. Well, the word rapture comes from the Latin word uh, rapto, the verb rapto. The Latin verb rapto translates the Greek word harpazo in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So when Jerome translated uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 into Latin, he used the Latin word rapto, which is where we get the word rapture. So, yes, the word rapture is used in the Bible. It is a biblical word. Now, another verse that we see uh, in Second Thess 2.1, Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our gathering together to him. Now, the word here used for gathering together is the Greek word epi-sunagoge, gathering together, our assembly, sunagoge. What do you think that word means? Synagogue. It means an assembly. It's a synonym for the word in Greek. It's a synonym for the word ekklesia. We are gathered together. There is an assembly in the clouds. So in Second Thess two one, Paul says, "Now we request you, brethren." Who's the we? The we is he's talking about himself and the apostles, probably Timothy and Silas who are with him. Then he says, "We request you, brethren, the Thessalonians, 
with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our, that would be both uh, Paul and his apostolic entourage and the those uh, Thessalonian believers, our gathering together to him. So this is definitely talking about the rapture of the church. Now, the next couple of verses are in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all sleep, but we shall always be changed. A long time ago, somebody said that is a sign that should go over the nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So this is describing the rapture of the church and the word that is used here is the Greek word alaso, which means to change, to transform, to exchange. So we who are alive, are we have an exchange of this mortal Flesh, that's the context of 1 Corinthians 15. Whether it's dead and corrupt or not, there's an exchange of this mortal corrupt body for incorruptible flesh. Now, another key verse is John 14:3. This is where Jesus clearly taught the rapture in John 14, 1 through 3. In fact, the three strongest passages for the rapture are John 14, 1 through 3, which you might not at first glance think of as a rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus says in, first, I mean in John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, uh, I will come again and receive you to myself. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where does Jesus go at the ascension? Preview of coming attractions. Where does Jesus go at the ascension? goes to the right hand of the Father in heaven. So he is going to prepare a place where? In heaven. And he is going to take us where he is, in heaven. But if you believe, if you're, believe in a post-trib rapture, then when Jesus is coming down, he's descending at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming, Believers will go up with him to the clouds, but they don't go to heaven. They just come back to the earth. And then they establish the kingdom in a post-trib, premillennial viewpoint. Now, if you're Amil, you've got other problems and other issues. But Jesus is saying here that he's going to prepare a place for us that we're going to go to. Next time, we'll probably get to understanding what that place is and that it's a temporary abode. Okay, he uses the word here, paralambano, which means to take to or to receive to oneself. Another passage is from Paul in um, Titus 2.13, where Paul says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. And this is an important passage because it tells us that as believers, what we're looking for next isn't the Antichrist, it's Jesus Christ. What we're looking for next isn't uh, the tribulation, it isn't the appearance of, of uh, 
the, the, the great harlot. It isn't the sealed judgments. The next thing we're looking for is the blessed hope and appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the next thing to happen. The word that he uses here for appearance is the word uh, epiphania, meaning a manifestation or an appearance in Titus 2.13. Another passage, Philippians 3.11. Paul states simply, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, but he doesn't use the normal word for resurrection, which is anastasis. He adds a prefix to it, ex anastasis, which means out of the resurrection of the dead. That indicates a group that is separate and distinct from those that are simply resurrected. Old Testament saints will be resurrected, tribulation saints resurrected at the end of the tribulation period. This is a, this distinguishes this resurrection from the other resurrection. So he says, uh, I look, I, I, in order that I may attain to the rapture. That's what he's talking about here, the, that ex-anastasis, that he may attain to the resurrection from the dead, which indicates that by this point, Paul probably began to think that he might not survive and go up alive at the rapture because he calls it an exit resurrection from the dead. First Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The key word there is delivers us, which is the Greek word ruamai, meaning to draw something to oneself, to rescue by a forcible act, or to deliver. Sometimes it's a synonym for salvation, but it means usually a deliverance from a physical catastrophe. The physical catastrophe in that context, is the wrath to come, which is a term that is sometimes used, not always, but it's sometimes used for the tribulation period. Then we have 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word that is used there for the revelation of Jesus Christ is apocalypsis, meaning an uncovering, laying something bare to reveal something or a revelation in 1 Peter 1.13. Then in James 5.7, be patient therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now in context, he's talking to brethren who are church-age believers. The term that we're going to see here used for the coming of the Lord is the word Parousia, and parousia is not a technical term for the rapture. It's used here for the rapture, but in other places it refers to the second coming. So it's not a technical term for the for the rapture. This brings us to a study on First Thess four, which I want to look at next time, which will be six key verses for the rapture. What are the key passages we go to? And the first one is going to be our anchor passage in 1 Thess 4, uh, 13 through 18. And then we will go on from there looking at each one of these passages in just a little more detail. 
Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to think about the rapture not as a way to escape and avoid problems that we might have in this life, for the scripture is very clear that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, and we will always experience tribulation, that is, with a lowercase t, in this life, adversity, difficulties, challenges. It is not until we are face-to-face with you and freed from our sin nature and from living in this cosmic system that we will be freed from adversity. But the tribulation, the great tribulation, that which is described as Daniel's 70th week is a time of such horror that it is not a place for the bride of Christ. And therefore, we will be removed before that happens for its purpose has nothing to do with us. We will not be purified in the tribulation. We will be purified at the Bema seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might be prepared in good works, as Scripture says, living our life to serve and to glorify you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.